Welcome to the Boonville Worship Center Sermon Podcast. Uh, The Transforming Gospel of God's Grace. This is part three. So I didn't know um, if I would continue on this topic, but I'm here. And I also speak next week, and I am 99% sure that I will also be staying on this topic again. Um, And it's, it's really the same principle as committing to get to know one another relationally within the body. Because grace, in order to apply grace, we need to stick with the process, right? We need to continue on the journey. And being a believer doesn't just mean that I intellectually understand the basics of the gospel and I say a sinner's prayer and then I'm good to go for the next decades of my life, right? To be a believer is to be among the body of believers, and it's also to commit to a process. I I belong to Jesus, and me belonging to Jesus is me committing to a process of transformation that takes time, right? So, we, we are transformed into Christ's image, not overnight, but we're transformed through time. So, and, and that this message of grace is that message that isn't just this one time, okay, I understand the basics of grace, now I can move on to other topics. I've said this before, but the, the, the reality of being gospel-centered, I'm more convinced today than I was a year or two ago when I preached on the topic and when we decided as a church to have that be our, our overarching focus, we're gospel-centered, presence-driven. But I'm more convinced today in the importance of that than I was the last year or two. Because to be gospel-centered, our whole life should be oriented around the transforming gospel. Because, precisely because it takes time to be transformed. I don't just receive the message and then move on. So, in grace is the other side of that coin because the, 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 the gospel isn't just, I say a prayer and I'm forgiven. The gospel is God is abundantly committed to the long-term journey of transforming you, transforming your spouse, transforming your kids, transforming your pastor, transforming those around you. So that long-term journey is is that covenant-keeping love. So God is a God of covenant-keeping love. That means He's committed to covenant on our worst day. He's committed to His covenant with you When you are in the thick of it, when you are under torment and trauma and temptation and everything is just raging inside of you, God is committed to you. So part of the gospel of God's transforming grace is for us to be so overwhelmed at His commitment to us that we learn to be transformed by that to the point that we are now overwhelmed in our gracious commitment to one another. 
So to be transformed by the gospel of God's grace doesn't just mean that me and Jesus are on good terms. To be transformed by the gospel of God's grace is to say that I'm so impacted, I'm so touched by God's mercy that's new every morning, I'm so touched by God's patience with me in learning how to flesh out and apply the things that God speaks to me through His Word, I'm so overwhelmed by that that I am willing to do the same with my brothers and sisters. I'm willing to do the same with you. I'm willing to do the same with my spouse. I'm willing to do the same with my kids. Commit long-term. That's covenant. And as we get to know one another, we will have more and more opportunities to have that gospel actually impact our relationship. Because as I said last week, or a, a few weeks ago, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. None of us are excited about being in an atmosphere where sin is abounding. How many of you want a marriage where sin's abounding? How many of you want relationships with children and siblings where sin is abounding? None of us. But the reality of the, of, the, of the world we live in is that none of us are completely transformed yet. So the, the sin of each other, so my sin will touch some of you, my weaknesses and failures will touch some of you, and your weaknesses and failures and sins will, will potentially touch me in a negative way. So to be transformed by God's grace is to say, okay, God, the same way that you're treating me, the same mercy, the same patience, the same loving kindness, the same covenant, keeping long-term commitment, keeping, I am going to learn how to be that and do that and embrace that and give that to others. So as I said a few weeks ago, I'm going to read a quote, grace is God's free and unmerited favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve judgment. It is the love of God shown to the unlovely. It is God reaching downward to people who are in rebellion. How many of you want to interact with relationally people that are in rebellion? Anybody sign up? Find the most rebellious person around you and be like, let's be friends. But that's God's commitment to us. Right? So we want to learn how to be transformed so that we can do what God does to us. And he, Exodus 34, 6 says, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. And we spent extensive time on this verse focusing on how God is full of compassion, full of grace, abounding in loving kindness and truth, and yet he's slow to anger. He has all the data. He understands all the nuances of all of our weaknesses and failures and sins. And in light of his perfection, he's still slow to anger. He's still abounding in loving kindness and truth and compassion. So as we get to know each other, as you 
continue to get to know your spouse, like you're going to see the weaknesses and the insecurities and the, all the things that hurt, all the things that prick us. We see that more and more. But the call of Christ is the more you see it, we have opportunities to come before God and say, God, I want to be like you. You see everything. You see every hidden motive of my heart. So God, as you are abundantly patient and gracious with me, teach me how to be abundantly patient and gracious with my spouse, with my kids, with my friends, with my church family. So we saw that grace is not just a principle, right? We're not just going to God's throne, say, God, teach me the principle of grace, and then I go to the problem, and I pull out my cheat sheet on grace, and I'm like, how do I apply it? Grace is part of God. He's full of grace. So for me to impart grace into a relationship is for me to invite God, God, come with me, you come with me, God. You lead me. You guide me. You pour out grace to me and through me into this situation. We're inviting God himself to come and touch. Touch the marriage. Touch the relationship. Touch the issues of bitterness and tension and fear and whatever else is going on. We, we invite God to come and touch that with his presence, and he is that God of grace. So to apply grace to those who initiated hardship for our life or who played their part in the hardship that we are now in, we have to apply grace to the real sin, the real failures, the real weaknesses that have hurt, and deep, that have hurt us and to invite God, His nature, and His kingdom into those very scenarios. We have to abdicate our own control our own desire for justice, our own fleshly responses, and say, God, take over. Because this is how God's ordained it. I mean, you could search high and low. You could go to, from you know, Alaska to China and back. You could swap spouses 30 times. You're never going to find a spouse that's perfect. You're never going to find a church community that never hurts you. And somehow God's ordained this. That to become like Him is to deal with the pains and the tensions of life in the way that He would. So I can't walk in grace until I'm aware of my own need. I can't walk in grace until I'm aware of my own need. In our flesh, we are tempted to compare, measure, and judge others based on what? Based on our strength. In the flesh, I'm tempted to compare and judge others based on my strength. Have you ever noticed? That's, a, that's, how, that's how it happens. I don't know how to play the piano. So I'm not going to judge someone's... I'm not going to judge someone... And their skill of piano playing, because I don't have that. If I did play the piano and I was really good at it, 
I would now be more prone to, be, to enter into that regular comparison of saying, ah, I'm better than you. I see you fail. You miss that note. Your timing's off. So whatever you're good at, therein lies the temptation to then be the judge of those around you who are who have, at least in your opinion, who have a lesser skill set, a lesser understanding, their application of what they know in that area is insufficient compared to you. So in the flesh, we justify our own weakness while we boast in our strength. So as it pertains to me, I magnify my strength, I justify my weakness, and say, who cares about the weakness? I'm really good at this. So we ignore our own weaknesses while we magnify our own strength, our own perception of what we're good at, but then in others, we do the opposite. In others, we ignore their strength. We're like, I don't care that you're good at X, Y, Z. You hurt me in this way. Right? So we ignore their strength. We magnify their weakness because their weakness touches us or their sin or their failure. Those things, they touch us in a negative way. So we magnify that while we diminish their strength. We're like, I don't care that you're good at this, that, and the other. I don't care that you know the Bible. There's this one weakness that you have that hurts me, so therefore, I'm going to magnify that, become a judge of that, and therein lies tension and rub and bitterness, unforgiveness. Those things thrive when I minimize my own weakness and failure I maximize my own strengths, all the while I minimize other people's strengths and I maximize, I magnify their weakness. But the question is, so that, that, that in our flesh, that is most natural to us. The question is, is that God's grace? Is the gospel of God's transforming grace is it at all related to that natural way that we relate? Where is the gospel of God's transforming grace in that? And that really is the focus of this, of this topic that I'm hitting on, the gospel of God's grace, because I don't just want to understand it intellectually. I want this message to transform me. I want five years from now for Julianne to be able to testify Oh my goodness, the gospel of God's grace has changed my husband. <laughs> that is where the rubber meets the road. Because to be a believer is to, is to say I'm committed to the process of transformation. I didn't just become a believer five years ago or 30 years ago, and now I'm just, I'm good. I come to church to be entertained. I come to church to have a few friends, and I'm good. 
I never need to be prayed for. I never need to come to an altar call. I never need to be vulnerable and ask for help. I'm good. I'm a believer and that's it. The reality is all of us should be saying, God, I'm still not like you in whatever areas of my life and say, God, I still need transformation. And if you don't, if you think you don't need transformation, ask your spouse (laughs) or your children or your parents or your pastor or someone else around you and they will help enlighten you. So we all need transformation. So Romans 3, 10 through 12, it says, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks, that, who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. All right, encouraging word of the day. Y'all have failed. That's what it says. There's none righteous, not even one. But that's not the way I look at life. I look at life magnifying my strength, ignoring my weakness, ignoring your strength, and magnifying your weakness. And, and so, it, and based on that crooked math, I'm like, I'm righteous, you're not. So get in line, you're hurting me. Right? But here it says there's none righteous. Isaiah 64, 6, it says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, all, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. All of us have become like one who is unclean. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm unclean. Man. It's from that place of humility saying, God, I still need transformation. From that place of humility saying, God, there there are ways that I think and react. There are ways inside of me that are still unclean. In order for me to become a vessel of mercy and grace to others, I have to have self-awareness that I am not, I, I, I am not righteous in and of myself. I haven't mastered spiritual disciplines to the point of never having a a thought or a word or an action that is that needs to be repented of. So when we're talking about God, we're talking about God being rich in mercy. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 22, we're going to work, work our way through this passage if you want to open your Bibles and turn there. Ephesians 2, 1 through 22. 
It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So when we're talking about God's grace transforming us, we do have to have a reality check of where we came from, of our present continual need to be transformed. So no one is excluded. No one's excluded. Your cute grandma's not excluded. Your three-year-old child that's so cute isn't excluded. No one's excluded. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And verse 3, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Like, how many of you, when you go meet someone new at the church, you're like, yeah, I spent my life indulging in my flesh. How about you? What are you really good at? What have you spent your life doing? I'm really good at, you know, bolstering my self-image. I'm really good at indulging in the flesh. I'm really good at pursuing the lusts of my eyes. How about you? But the Bible says that we were all that way. No one's excluded. Your grandma's not excluded. Your great-grandfather's not excluded. Even if you have five generations of preachers in your family, you're not excluded. So the reality is, this is part of understanding the gospel of God's grace. We don't like being lumped together with the murderer, the child abuser, the sex trafficker, so we build our own categories and say that we kind of, sort of needed forgiveness, but others really need it. Right? I mean, there's lots, of, there's lots of sins that I haven't done, praise God. There's lots of sins that I haven't pursued, I haven't touched. But the reality that there's a list of sins that I haven't touched doesn't exonerate me. It doesn't mean that I'm right before God. It doesn't mean that I can self-righteously judge others because of the sins I haven't touched. So verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the age to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, 
so that no one may boast. For you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So it's in this passage that we see that phrase, by grace we have been saved through faith. So our entire relationship with God is founded upon his work, his righteousness, his unmerited kindness towards us, his mercy, his sacrificial death, and his grace. My relationship with God is founded on those things. My relationship with God is not founded upon the list of sins that I haven't touched. My relationship with God is not founded upon the list of sins that I haven't touched being bigger or smaller than your list of sins that you haven't touched. We are saved by grace through faith. So Paul says that we have done nothing to earn it. It is a gift of God and not of works. Why? So that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. Why, why would that be in there? None of you have attended my learn how to boast class. <laughs> but yet all of you know how to boast. My kids know how to boast. They don't even know what they're talking about. But my kids will just pick a topic and suddenly they're the expert. They will tell you exactly how it really is and how it works and how it, right? The first thing in our head is like, so where, like, what books have you read? Cite your sources. Where's your degree? Where's your experience? Where's your resume? They got nothing. They haven't studied these topics in the slightest, but yet they can instantly boast of their great knowledge on this topic and that. So all of us are, are not only capable, but that's in our flesh, this reality of boasting. But God says he saves us by grace through faith so that we can't boast. But again, we're, we're, when we're talking about the gospel of God's grace, I'm not just talking about the theology of it as it pertains to me being saved. I want to be transformed by the gospel of God's grace so that I know how to apply it in real life. So this exhortation that we're saved without works so that I can't boast, so boasting is not even an option, then how does that impact my relationship with my spouse? How does that impact my relationship with others when their insecurities and their quirks and their failures affect me negatively? Because that's the problem. What comes most natural to the flesh is to not have relationships based on grace. What comes most natural to the flesh is have relationships based on works, based on merit, based upon law. Is to say, these are the standards, measure up. And if you don't measure up enough, peace out. I can switch spouses, I can switch churches, I can switch whatever. That thing, that flesh inside of us, that's in all of us. The Bible says we've all fallen short of the glory. 
that none of us are righteous in and of ourselves. That means that thing inside of us that says, cross this line, hurt me enough, and I will self-justify my way into great bitterness, great anger, great whatever, right? I will self-justify myself in my pursuit of medicating my, my pain with sin. I'll do whatever I want to do if you cross this line and hurt me too much. In other words, there's no grace. There's no grace if I'm interacting with my child or my spouse or my friend or my pastor or anyone else in that way. That is a graceless relationship. Where God says the foundation of grace is to understand we've all failed. No one is righteous apart from God's free gift. I'm saved by faith through grace so that no one can boast. That means my interaction with you, your interaction with me, our interaction with our spouses should be saturated in grace. Because we know from the get-go, they aren't going to measure up perfectly. It says we can't. So no matter what I do to my spouse, I'm not going to be able to convince her or force her or pressure her or threaten her or do anything to her to get her to perform perfectly where I never get, never get hurt. Literally impossible. So if it's literally impossible to force someone else to act perfectly so that I don't get hurt, then the biblical way is grace. The biblical way is to be overwhelmed by God's mercy towards me that's perpetual. It is a long-term commitment. So James 4, 6 says, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God gives a greater grace. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He's opposed to the proud. If I want a graceless marriage, then I should exalt my strength, minimize my weakness, exalt my spouse's weakness, minimize their strength, live without grace, and then God says, I'm going to oppose you. Right? The, the fruit of saying, God, forgive me of my sins. I'm going to take it freely. Thank you. Forgive me. And then to turn around to someone else and to say, aha, no, I won't forgive you. Measure up. And if you don't measure up for a long enough time, I'm going to break this thing. I'm going to break you. I'm going to leave you. I'm going to destroy you. So grace, the call of grace is to transform. It's not just to rescue me from my personal sin. It's to touch the community at large. So verse 11, it says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, 
which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In other words, in all of our history, every single one of us, we once lived with no hope. We pursued flesh to our heart's content. Each of us has a different list of sins that we enjoyed and justified. So all of us had no hope. So without the rescue of God's grace, there's no hope between me and God. Without the rescue of God's grace, there's no hope between me and my spouse. It's the same thing. Like, th this is it. When, when, I mean, the, the, this is the topic at hand, is, is how does the transforming gospel of God's grace that transforms this, how is that? And when is that? And how do I learn how to have it transform this? So God wants to transform this by grace, by patience, through long-term commitment so that this can be transformed by grace through faith, not on, not on the basis of merit, so that no one can boast. That means no matter how strong I am, and how weak the other party is, as it pertains to relationships, God says, who cares? All of you were once in a desperate state of needing a rescue of grace. You were dead in your trespasses. God came to save you when you were still thoroughly dead, 100% dead. So if God came to save us when we were 100% dead, not on the basis of merit, I didn't do anything, I didn't check the right boxes, I didn't perform before God, so he's like, ah, yeah, yes, I'll pick you. So if that's true between us, then let that grace transform this, me to you, you to your, to your friend, your spouse, your boss. If I forget that I did nothing to earn the free gift of grace and I did nothing to earn Christ's righteousness, then I will treat people based upon how much they do or don't hurt me and not based upon the thankfulness of my heart in receiving grace from God. How many of you know? All of us. I mean, some people struggle with anger. Some people don't. Some people struggle with bitterness. Some people don't. But no matter who you are, no matter what your strengths and weaknesses are, all of us are tempted to treat one another based on the measure of how much they have hurt us. In other words, you hurt me more, I'm going to treat you differently. I'm going to stay away from you. I'm going to talk bad about you behind your back. 
I am going to build walls. I am going to do whatever is necessary to try to force you to treat me better or to try to just utterly avoid you. But that's not how God treats us. God doesn't run the other way when we trip and fall again. Grace is God's unmerited kindness toward those who don't deserve it. And as I said a few weeks ago, it's, it's not just that, but it's, it's at the height of our failure. That's precisely where God is showing up and saying, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. I'm right here. I'm ready to forgive you. I'm ready to transform you. I'm ready to root that thing out of you, whatever it is. So verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, peace to those who were near, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. In other words, at the height of of failure, sin, transgression, chaos, Jesus shows up to preach peace. Jesus shows up to say, I will reconcile you back to myself for free. And if you allow me, I want to teach you how to do the same to your brother. And it says he abolished in his flesh the enmity. What was the enmity? What was the rub? the law of commandments contained in ordinances. In other words, we've all failed, so we literally can't do it perfectly right. It's impossible. And if I literally can't do it perfectly right, and my relationship with you or my spouse or my kids or my boss is based on do it right, and I literally can't do it right, then what will that create? Endless friction. Endless friction. Like it literally doesn't work. So he came preaching a message of peace, preaching a message of reconciliation, saying the only way forward is to rescue your brother and your spouse and your boss and your friend, the only way to do it is to rescue them the same way I rescued you. I rescued you not by saying, jump a little higher. Your merit will get you into heaven. You just need to discipline yourself to the point of perfection. If that can't rescue me and get me into right relationship with God, then that same spirit of demands, that same spirit of 
laws and commandments and ordinances won't, keep, won't get this healthy either. My relationship to the body, the body's relationship to me. If it won't work between us, then it won't work between us either. And that is the gospel of God's grace. He rescued us by giving us unmerited kindness precisely where we deserve it the least. And that is what he calls us to give to those around us when they utterly don't deserve it. So then verse 19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of a household of God. Fellow citizens with the saints. In other words, being rescued by God is not just, okay, I'm good with God. Forget the body. Stay away from the body. The body hurts you. Stay away from the body. Is there anywhere in Scripture where God's like, I'm just warning you, stay away from the body of Christ. They're not fixed yet. So steer clear. Like, receive a little bit, but if they hurt you, I give you permission. Run the other way. I give you permission to curse them. Is that the biblical exhortation? The biblical exhortation is don't forsake the assembling together. Is God unwise? Is he lacking his intellectual foreknowledge that we would be imperfect even this many thousands of years after his death and resurrection? He knew. He knew that this many generations in, whether you're part of a spirit-filled body of believers or you're not spirit-filled or you're Eastern Orthodox or you're Catholic, or it doesn't matter. Every theological camp, every church, every denomination has the same issue. We are believers that belong to God and we belong to one another and we are not yet fully transformed. And because of that, the same grace that rescues me should rescue us. So then verse 20, it says, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Being built together. Being built together. When you're building something and a nail's poking out of the wrong spot and you touch it, it hurts. That doesn't mean you build things without nails. When you're building something and you get a splinter, it hurts. That doesn't mean we build invisible things without wood. So the body is the body. 
The only way to obey Christ is to have the same covenant-keeping commitment here that God says He has with us. In other words, we patiently endure. We suffer. I'm not going to touch it this week. I'm going to touch it next week. There's another passage. There's other passages that, that I'm reserving for next week. But we stick it out. We stay the course. God doesn't say run from one another because your sin will hurt others and their sin will hurt you. Instead, he tells us that we are to build together. We are to be built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So how much grace should we give others? Any guesses? How much grace? I think in our flesh, our answer would be, as much as they deserve. Right? I'm going to give you as much grace as you deserve. You behave good this week? Hmm. I'm going to give you an abundance of grace. You hurt me this week? Your ration of grace will be smaller. This is how it works. And if you would just follow my rules and understand the rationing of grace, then we will be good. But that doesn't even work with the basic English definition of what grace is. If grace is unmerited kindness toward those who don't deserve it, then there's no such thing as rationing grace. There's no such thing as saying, I'll give you more grace when you don't deserve it, but I'm going to withhold grace from you when you do deserve it. That's literally backwards. I'm going to give you kindness only when you deserve it. I'm going to withhold kindness. I'm going to withhold patience. I'm going to withhold love. I'm going to withhold forgiveness. I'm going to withhold every good thing that's inside of me when I think you don't deserve it. Think about that for a second. That, 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 that's like telling your child, the more hungry you get, I'm actually going to give you less food. I'm going to withhold from you the very thing you need because when you're hungry, you get angry. So my punishment to you is no food. But as it pertains to one another, the grace of God should overflow and be most abundant when sin is abounding. It should be most abundant when our heart is most hurt. But that's when it's hardest to do it. And that's why we have to wash ourselves with this topic to the point to where we actually humble ourselves and learn and say, okay, God, teach me. Teach me how to do this. So Matthew 18, 21, verse 22 says, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. I mean, all of us have heard this verse, 
And it's easy to like say, okay, sweet. Right? I mean, we, we quote this verse perhaps to others when we know that they should forgive us. Like, you know, in order to obey Jesus, you better forgive me. But when it comes time for us to forgive others, it's like we forget the verse exists. Because we want to flip back into that merit-based relationships. Where you perform, you don't hurt me, you keep your distance, you never say an unkind thing, you never interact poorly with me, and we're good. But Jesus says, forgive one another. Basically, don't stop. And then Ephesians 4.32, it says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Again, this is a verse we've all heard. Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God forgave you. Here's the problem. When does someone need forgiveness? When they fail you. When does someone need kindness and tenderheartedness? When you're in pain based on something they did or didn't do or did or didn't say. So the theory is awesome. But when the rubber meets the road, we have to realize, wait a second, be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving. So that reality of the, uh, of the God, his character being manifested in me is most needed when I'm in pain. It's most needed when the flesh is most tempted to say, forget grace, we're back to merit. You hurt me. So I'm going to judge you based on your weakness. All the while I forget that I have any. So it's precisely when the pain and the rub and the sin is most manifest that God is saying, maintain kindness, maintain gentleness, release grace, be patient, forgive. And then 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21 says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. The love of Christ controls us. He died for everybody. Christ died for every person that, have, that has ever said an unkind word to you. Christ died not just for your sins, but for the sins committed against you. For the love of Christ controls us. That's how I deal with pain. That's how we, in Christ, should learn to deal with the mistreatment of others. That should be that summary statement that comes to our heart. The love of Christ controls me. It hurts, yes. 
Was there sins committed against me? Yes. The love of Christ controls me. The love of Christ has so touched me that I no longer recognize others according to the flesh. If I'm no longer recognizing you according to the flesh, like we all have the list. It's impossible for you to live with your spouse even for three months straight without saying or doing something that hurts one another. But yet God says we don't recognize one another according to the flesh. For the love of Christ controls us. In other words, if I am recognizing you according to the flesh, if I am having the foundation of my relationship be based on law and merit and just divine justice, you cross the line, you're going you're to receive justice. If that's true, then the love of Christ is not controlling me. And the love of Christ has not transformed me. Because the love of Christ, the way he interacts with me, is an abundance of patience and kindness and mercy when I need it most and grace when I don't deserve it, right? So then verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, and behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. And through God, we were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of God and Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is powerful. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new, cre- he's a new creature. If anyone is in Christ, we do things differently now. Right? If, anyone, if the love of Christ controls me, I do things differently. When I'm hurt, I I react differently. When I'm tempted, I react differently. But here, it says, Now all things are from God who reconciled us to himself. How? Through Christ. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is how we know that everything I've been talking about is actually for us. Right? He says, I reconciled you this way, through blood, through mercy, based on grace. I reconciled you this way, now you are to become a minister of reconciliation. Now you go do the same thing. You multiply what I've done. That's the call. He's saying, I did it by grace. Now you, you go do it by grace. But here also, it gives further clarity. It says, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation, then verse 19, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. How? How did God reconcile the world to himself? Not counting their trespasses against them. 
That's how God did it. He reconciled us to himself, obviously by being the blood sacrifice, but he did it by not counting their trespasses against them. In other words, I mean, we, we, we're, we're all aware of this even in the world today. Nations or, nations or families or gangs or whatever that have endless conflict, multi-generational conflict, why does it never stop? Punch me, I'll punch you harder. Take out someone in my family, I'll take out two people in yours. That law, flesh, way of relating literally has no rescue. The only way to rescue, the only way to get out of that tit for tat, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, you hurt me, I'll hurt you back. You say something bad about me, I'll say something bad about you and your mom. (laughs) That reality will perpetuate. There's literally no way out. The The only way out is for someone to step up where the love of Christ controls them and they decide, I'm not going to count the trespasses against them. Your slate's clean. I'm not going to go there. Of course you've sinned against me. I could have, I, 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 I could have chosen any church to attend, could have sat under any pastor I wanted, could have married any spouse I wanted, the reality is the same. If we've all fallen short, if there's none righteous, no, not even one, not even one, if that's true, then the only way out of the rat race of comparison and exalting ourselves and putting others down and demanding perfection, the only way out of that rat race is to not count their trespasses against them in the same way that God doesn't count our trespasses. That's it. That, that's the message of grace with boots on the ground. That's the message of grace that actually is, is no longer philosophical in nature. That's the message of grace that transforms is that God gave us the ministry of reconciliation and he tells us how, we, how he did it. He accomplished it by not counting their trespasses against them. And therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. And we go around making that appeal. We plead with others to be reconciled to God. We plead with others not in self-righteousness, not in saying, oh my goodness, you did what? But by saying, you know what? Your sin preference might be different than mine. The way you spent your life indulging in the flesh and pursuing your own means of pleasure might be different than the way I did it. But we've all done it. We all need a divine rescue. And the only way to be rescued is to stop counting sins against people. 
is to fall at the feet of Jesus, come before the blood, and say, this is where it stops. The blood of Christ is enough to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. All of it. Doesn't matter if your perceived list of sins is different or bigger or smaller than the person next to you. That whole reality of interacting based on flesh, based on exalting our strength, diminishing their strength, exalting their weakness so that we can tell each other like it is and say, I don't care that I've sinned against you, your sin is worse. That whole thing breaks when we become ministers of reconciliation. That whole thing breaks when we take the gospel of grace, not just as it pertains to me and God, but we take it actually with us out these doors. Because my life before God is not just what you see me on the pulpit. My life before God is lived out every other day of the week, every other hour of the week when I'm tired, when I'm stressed, when life happens. And that's where grace is needed. That's where that gospel of grace transforms us. So living out God's grace means following in Christ's footsteps by not counting their trespasses against them. This will never come naturally to our flesh. This is the same as the biblical phrase, love holds no record of wrong. Love holds no record of wrong. That doesn't mean that we can forget everything that was done wrong but it means that we rightly understand the gospel that we've all done wrong. And because we've all done wrong, and God rescued me, not by, be, not by me performing my way, not by me sinning less than the hundred people next to me, I was rescued as a free gift of God's unmerited favor and kindness towards me when I least deserved it. And that is the same reality that will rescue and release the grace of God in, to those around us. So Craig, I just invite you to come up. The more I preach on this topic, the more I look at it, I feel like it's touching me deeper. I feel a greater heart connect to the reality of it. But it's not just about the emotional touch on a Sunday. Because life hurts and life is outside those doors. So I just invite you all to stand.
what I'm feeling is just that I would like to invite anyone up to the front who wants to come before God and just ask God for a fresh touch of his kindness, of his unmerited favor and grace towards you where you feel like you're not quote-unquote full, like you need God to touch you afresh. Because if God doesn't touch us, then I can't just turn around and do it. So if you would like to come up and just, your cry is, God, fill me. Fill me with the grace that I need to then pour out in the relationships and in the scenarios around me. I just invite you to come forward. God, to see who's at the altar and who's not. God, we come before you corporately, God, and we cry out. Transform us, oh God. God, we cry out, Lord, let the love of Christ control us. God, we cry out, have mercy on all of us who have fallen short. Let the blood of God speak a better word. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would impart to our friendships and our relationships and our marriages, God, you would impart grace upon grace. You would impart the love of Christ that would control us God, we are saved as we are saved by grace through faith as a free gift, God. So give us that free gift of grace to pour out, become an ambassador of grace to those around us, God. I can't give away something I haven't received. God, pour into us grace upon grace upon grace. Where sin abounds, let grace abound more. God, we cry out, let us be a church of an abundance of grace and a church overflowing with kind, unmerited kindness. In Jesus' name, God, we say transform us. God, I pray that your grace touch our hearts, Lord. 72 hours from now, God. Let it touch our hearts, God, as we face the world tomorrow and Thursday and Friday, God. As, Lord, as life unfolds, let your grace, let the love of Christ control us and let your grace be abundant in our life. God, we stand as one. One body, 
needing grace. One church needing grace. None of us better than the other. None of us obtaining anything in God in our own strength, God. We stand united. If part of the body suffers, we all suffer. So God, we cry out in the name of Jesus. God, that you would heal the brokenhearted. That you would touch our spirits and give us an abundance of grace, God. Let grace flow like a river from our hearts. Let grace flow in our speech. Let grace flow in our conversations. God, you say that you are our peace. Father, we invite your peace into every area of our heart that is anxious. Every anxiety, God, every fear of our heart. Father, we invite the peace of God. Come, touch us. Touch our bodies, God, where our bodies lack peace. Touch our mind and our emotions, God, where we lack peace. In the name of Jesus, I speak peace. Peace to you in Jesus' name. Peace that quiets the storm. Peace that settles the heart. Peace that washes over anxiety until it lifts. Peace that heals the wounds of life. In Jesus' name. you feel like because of what you've done wrong or how you've acted that you're at the back of the line you feel like you're at the back of the line and that there might not be grace for you when you get to the front but God is saying that grace is literally who he is. He is a God of abundant grace. He will not run out. Come freely and receive the grace that you need. Ten times a day, come receive the grace that you need.
Don't focus on the grace that leaks out. It's like an engine leaking oil. You can have anxiety about the oil that's leaking out. But I, I feel like God is saying that He has enough oil even for your leaky engine. Even for your heart or your relationship that is leaking grace, there's enough. And if you allow the grace of God to flow into you, even if it's leaking out, He will heal and close up the holes. God will close up the holes where grace is leaking. The grace of God is enough. The grace of God will rescue you. God's grace is so abundant. He can take your heart and literally 100% submerge it in His grace. There's enough. There's enough unmerited kindness. There's enough mercy of God to surround, to heal, to cleanse, whatever it is that's inside of our hearts. God, we pray. Fill us to overflowing, God, so that we can be ambassadors of grace. We receive the grace we need so that we can also give the grace that others need. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good week. May your week be full of grace. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us this week. Until next time.